My name is Edward Madigan. I'm the resident historian with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and I'm going to talk about understandings of courage during the First World War. Courage. I would say that no virtue, no human characteristic, has a greater impact on the outcome of military endeavour than courage. A whole range of different factors comes into play when an army takes to the field. Pre-combat training, weaponry, firepower, relative strength of numbers, levels of fatigue, and not least, leadership. All other things being equal, however, success is very largely contingent on the reserves of courage possessed by the soldiers on either side. To put it bluntly, an army of heroes may not necessarily prevail in battle, but an army of cowards will most assuredly meet with defeat. In a radio broadcast made not long after the Second World War, the war hero and field marshal, Sir William Slim, said that he did not believe, quote, that there's any man who, in his heart of hearts, wouldn't rather be called brave than have any other virtue attributed to him, end quote. Yet while courage is, of course, a desirable virtue in peacetime, in time of war, it ceases to be simply desirable and becomes a prerequisite for collective success and individual honour. The advent of war also transforms cowardice from a merely unattractive human characteristic into a potentially catastrophic liability. The urgent wartime need to promote courage and deter cowardice has traditionally seen armies reward their heroes and punish, even kill, their cowards. But despite this centrality of courage to the experience of war, historians of war have actually had very little to say about it. And I think this, um, this lack of historiographical comment on courage, and indeed cowardice, comes from the fact, partly at least, that we instinctively think we know what is meant by combat and courage. When we think of courage in combat, we generally think of physical courage. So in other words, the willingness, the readiness to expose oneself to enemy aggression, be that the edged weapons of the ancient world or the shot and shell of the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, I think, of course, physical courage was absolutely admired and rewarded throughout the First World War. But what I'd like to talk about today is a different type of courage, the sort of courage that arguably won the war on the Western Front. So I'd like to look at the way junior officers and men of the British Army, although I think there are direct parallels in the other belligerent armies, I'd like to look at the way they conceived of frontline courage, what their ideal of courage, their paradigm of courage was. And I'm going to suggest that their ideal of courage was very closely linked to endurance, which is unsurprising, but also that their ideal of courage was defined by a rejection of the victimhood uh, or the victim status that the war on the Western Front seemed to push soldiers into. I'm also going to suggest that this ideal of courage was invariably expressed through humour. Now, what soldiers experienced on the Western Front was a radically new form of warfare. All of the various components of the war on the Western Front, or at least most of them, existed in the pre-war period but the scale and intensity, and especially the longevity of the war in the Western Front, was radically new. So if we want to understand the ways in which frontline soldiers understood courage, we have to consider what the experience of frontline service in such a war was like. Well, as a very diverse range of military historians has been at pains to point out, the war in the Western Front 
was first and foremost an artillery war. With experience, junior officers and men learned to live with the routine short-range shelling that was a staple feature of life in the trenches. Coming under intense, concentrated shell fire, particularly of the sort laid down by large-caliber heavy artillery, was quite a different experience. And the personal narratives produced by soldiers during the war bear witness to the abject terror they felt when forced to withstand heavy artillery bombardment. This feeling of impotence and powerlessness in the face of heavy enemy fire was a paradigmatic feature of frontline service during the war. And it's extremely common in narratives, the diaries, the letters, and other personal narratives produced by soldiers during the war, this sense of helplessness they felt under heavy enemy fire. His inability to retaliate, combined with the indiscriminate, seemingly capricious nature of the destruction wreaked by artillery, meant that a man's individual attributes appeared to count for very little in the front line. The strongest, fittest, most courageous soldier was just as vulnerable to the threat of death or serious injury as his weakest comrade. Now, to me, that's quite striking. In wars for millennia before the 20th century, a man could go into battle and he could say to himself, I'm well trained, I'm physically strong, I know my weapon, I trust my comrades, so I've got a pretty good chance of surviving this. That didn't disappear completely during the First World War, but it was greatly reduced. So again, the strongest, bravest, most well-trained individual in a battalion or whatever the unit was, was just as vulnerable as his weakest comrade. So agency was greatly reduced. Now, revisionist historians have rightly pointed out that the experience of trench warfare was not relentlessly grim. That infantrymen spent most of their time in sections of the front that were relatively or completely free from enemy fire. And that boredom was arguably as much of a menace to troop morale as fear. When at rest, however, soldiers knew that it was only a matter of time before they returned to the danger, violence and discomfort of the line. It was thus not simply the experience of coming under enemy fire that tested men's courage and endurance, but the knowledge that that experience would be repeated. Soldiers serving in or near the front line in France or Belgium often lived under the threat of death or serious injury for weeks or months on end. So although the cycle of violence experienced by individual soldiers was punctuated by periods of rest, it was nonetheless a cycle. In this sense, the war in the Western Front took on the characteristics of siege warfare, a siege in which personal agency, at least for the infantryman, was reduced almost to nil. So while many officers and men often bore frontline service remarkably well to begin with, and some very clearly really enjoyed the experience of frontline service, a stage was inevitably reached after an extended period in the line when resilience began to wane or broke altogether. Now I just want to um, quote to you from two letters written by a junior officer who served with the Oxford and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry. His name was Lionel Crouch. Writing in April 1915, after his first experience of the trenches, the first couple of days he was in the trench, he wrote to his mother, and this is what he said. I have never enjoyed myself more than during the last three days. The guns are banging away again and bullets are zipping over our trench all the time. The more I see of this show, the more I want to see. He was really enjoying the experience. In a letter written to his mother in January 1916, the tone is markedly different. This is about 10 months later, and this is what he says. 
I feel so beastly nervy now. I have taken to ducking at bullets, which I never used to do. And shells make me jump like blazes. We're all getting like that. It is absurd keeping us in the trenches so long. Six months continuously now. So Crouch's nerve had not broken, and he went on to serve with distinction until he was killed during the Somme offensive the following July. But his reserves of courage, what Lord Moran would have called his capital of courage, and that of his comrades, had very clearly been depleted. Now, much of the fatigue and stress and anxiety experienced by men like Lieutenant Crouch resulted from the constant, relentless experience of being exposed to enemy fire without being able to fight back, without being able to respond to that adequately. Now, we should remember that certain specialists who operated in the front line, such as machine gunners, snipers, trench mortar operators, they killed significant numbers of the enemy during ordinary trench warfare. Uh, aggressive patrolling of no man's land and trench raids, which were carried out with increasing frequency from about mid-1915 onwards, also offered men the chance to personally strike back at the enemy. In addition, set-piece battles and offensives often involved a good deal of hand-to-hand -hand fighting and killing, and actually probably more than historians have admitted. And there is ample evidence that many, if not all, soldiers relished the opportunity to engage with the enemy at close quarters. The fact remains, however, that much of the day-to-day -day activity of the infantryman in the line was devoted not to killing, but to avoiding being killed. In a very real sense, then, the nature of the war on the Western Front tended to reduce the frontline soldier's status to that of victim, not perpetrator of violence. But what impact did these grim realities of trench warfare have on frontline soldiers' understanding of courage? Well, the sheer size of the British Army on the Western Front and the regional class and cultural diversity of the men who served in its ranks should dissuade historians from making general statements about combatant mentalities. Certain contemporary sources do, however, give us an insight into the broad ethos of the infantry in the front line and shed light on the way that the mass of junior officers and men understood courage and correct soldierly conduct. So what I'm talking about here is the kind of sources that don't tell us about individual or subjective opinions, but give us an idea of troop culture, of an ethos or a culture among frontline soldiers. And I don't mean the army per se, but frontline combatants. The numerous trench journals produced during the war are particularly valuable in this regard, and they're a remarkably underused resource uh, or, or uh, source, as are the songs soldiers composed and sang while marching to and from the front. Now, perhaps the most striking feature of soldiers' songs and soldiers' journalism is just how full of humour this material is. Now, they were capable of writing quite a, you know, quite a serious way about different things and um, you know, some of the poetry to fallen comrades and that, it's, it's quite moving and poignant. But a lot of the journalistic material and virtually all of the songs they sang, it's bawdy, it's humorous, it's very often comic. Um, it was both the journalism and the, and the soldier's songs were very much inspired by the, the musical and theatrical review culture of pre-war Britain. So a lot of the humor uh, transferred to the front. But what does, this, what does this stuff tell us about combatant mentalities? Well, a constant refrain in this material is that while officers and men do not enjoy life at the front, or don't necessarily enjoy life at the front, they are prepared to withstand it and make sacrifices as cheerfully as possible until the war is won. So although the deprivation 
violence and danger of the front line are rarely denied in the trench journals and songs. They are usually alluded to in a manner that suggests that soldiers, fed up though they may be, can endure them. Now I'll just give you one example. This is from a very popular song called If the Sergeant Steals Your Rum. So a lot of the um, abuse that you read in, uh, in transcripts of soldier songs is usually directed at uh, sergeants or quartermasters, so non-commissioned officers. Just two stanzas, this is the last two stanzas. If old Jerry shells the trench, never mind. If old Jerry shells the trench, never mind. Though the blasted sandbags fly, you have only once to die. If old Jerry shells the trench, never mind. If you get stuck on the wire, never mind. If you get stuck on the wire, never mind. Though the lights as broad as, as day, when you die they stop your pay. If you get stuck on the wire, never mind. Now remember, of course, that getting stuck on the wire meant certain death. So the reference here, and it, it sounds better, of course, when it's sung, but what they're saying here is that, you know, this risk of death is terrible, it's serious, but we can take it. Uh, we can take it on the chin, um, we can take what the war dishes out. Now the use of humour is crucial here. British soldiers frequently wrote quite seriously about their experiences and gave candid voice to feelings of fear and anxiety in their diaries and personal correspondence. When they communicated with each other publicly, however, in their songs, journalism and daily conversations, they invariably put a brave face on their circumstances by employing humour. And while the tone and frames of reference may have differed, humour was as vital to officers as it was to the rank and file. And I think, generally speaking, trench journals are more reflective of officer or at least middle-class mentality, so either officers or middle-class rankers, while the songs tend to reflect more um, the sensibilities and, and the mentalities of working-class troops. But it's remarkable that they have a, a very similar picture of what correct soldierly conduct or the correct attitude of frontline soldiers should be. The self-deprecating, mock heroic humour of British soldiers so clearly revealed in their trench journalism and in the songs they sung, acted as a coping mechanism that helped them deal with uh, their environment and make sense of it. But this humour served also to provide a basic standard of soldierly conduct. The ability to take the violence and deprivation of frontline service in one's stride, or at least to appear to do so, represented a paradigm of everyday courage that soldiers both respected in others and attempted to cultivate in themselves. This combatant conception of frontline courage I think is ca captured particularly well in the old build cartoons created by Bruce Barnesfather, an officer who served with the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. That's just a portrait there of old Bill. Probably the best known cartoon produced by Barnesfather doesn't actually feature old Bill. Um, it's the famous If You Knows of a Better Old uh, cartoon which dates from 1915. So he's not, he's not uh, Old Bill act isn't actually in that cartoon, but this is precisely the sort of humour that made Old Bill and the other characters so popular. The comic scenarios dreamed up by Barnes' father became nothing short of a phenomenon uh, during the war, both on the home front and on the fighting fronts. And the magazine in which they appeared, The Bystander, saw its readership just go right through the roof over the course of the war. Now, these cartoons are certainly amusing, even today, um, and I think they were appreciated as such um, by civilians as much as by frontline soldiers. 
For the men in the trenches, however, they took on a resonance that went beyond their humorous content. The characters created by Barnes' father appealed to British troops because they seemed more authentic than the idealised representations of so soldiers produced by Richard Caton Woodville, Harry Payne and the illustrators of the mainstream national press. The average soldier could see a good deal of himself in Old Bill and the other characters. He could relate to their rat-in-a-trap predicaments. Also, and importantly, Old Bill and his pals embodied a set of very practical but nonetheless heroic qualities. They were tough, reliable, stoic, and possessed of the sort of temperament that could help a man survive army life in general and life at the front in particular. These were not knights or martyrs, but ordinary men. The average ranker could identify with their courage and aspire to possess it himself. Crucially, moreover, their morale under fire was excellent. In a protracted, attritional artillery war, this was how the infantryman was supposed to behave under fire. Barnesfather's cartoons thus both, both offered and reflected a combatant code of conduct in which courage was closely linked to humour and stoic endurance. So, to conclude, what I think all of these sources reveal is that in a protracted war of attrition in which victory remained elusive, personal agency was reduced and fear had to be repeatedly confronted, the power to um, endure and behave as if all of these things were of no account formed a key component of frontline courage. The, the determination to endure thus involved a refusal to accept the role of passive victim that trench warfare seemed to push the frontline soldier into. Now, a number of historians concerned with identity and self-perception of soldiers in the Western Front have commented on the degree to which combatants viewed themselves as victims. Back in the 1980s, Eric Lead argued that the well-documented comradeship of the First World War, of First World War soldiers, and um, that this came from their sharing, quote, the status and powerlessness of victims. Much more recently, Mary Harbeck has said that the alienating loss of individual control engendered by frontline service led soldiers to believe that they were indeed victims of the war. So there's certainly an academic perspective that relegates soldiers to the status of victims, but I also think that's part of the popular understanding of uh, soldiers in the Western Front during the First World War. And it tends to be reinforced by things like military cemeteries. So if you go into um, an enormous cemetery like Tyne Cot, for example, in Flanders, and you see over 12,000 headstones, the tendency is to think these men were passive victims. They were victims of something. Um, they didn't have agency, they didn't have control, they didn't uh, have prowess. And I think there is little doubt that troop morale fluctuated at the front and that individual soldiers frequently felt like victims. But the ethos or culture of the front line as revealed in trench journalism and the other popular sources, emphasised a defiant rejection of victimhood. Humorous mock heroics and indeed mock defeatism were an articulate expression of that rejection. So the story they told themselves is that we have agency, our prowess is important, we are individuals and we can make a difference. The characters in the Barnesfather cartoons, for example, are often thoroughly beleaguered and fed up but they are not victims. They are not anonymous, passive or defeated. And this was clearly part of their appeal to soldiers in active service. Thank you.